Welcome to Experts Only Podcasts, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only's podcast, where we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. My name is John Powers. I'm your co-host and one of the co-founders of Clean Capital, sponsors this podcast. Check out cleancapital.com and learn more about our new billion-dollar partnership with Carval Investors. Today, we are interviewing Amory Levins, who's the co-founder and chief scientist, as well as the chairman emeritus for Rocky Mountain Institute. Emory is one of the leading figures and really a godfather in this space for many of us who are focused on things like distributed generation. And if you don't know Rocky Mountain Institute, RMI is an independent, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that engages businesses, communities, and institutions, as well as entrepreneurs to accelerate the adoption of market-based solutions to help us shift from fossil fuels to energy efficiency and renewables. He's also an energy advisor to firms and, and governments worldwide. He's authored 31 books, more than 600 papers. Uh, I've quoted many of those papers or referenced them in my own work. Uh, he's, he's an integrative designer of super-efficient buildings, factories, and vehicles, and he's received extensive recognition for his work, including the MacArthur and Ashoka Fellowships and 12 honorary doctorates. Time even named Emery one of the world's most influential people, 100 most influential people in foreign policy, one of the top 100 global thinkers. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. We're going to cover a variety of issues from how he got interested in the space, started RMI, what's happening internationally in the work in India and China today. I'll warn you, this is a little bit longer episode to our normal episodes, but it really is a fascinating conversation. Emery, thank you so much for joining us on today's Experts Only podcast. You've had quite a prolific career in energy, and you're widely considered as one of the leading innovators in the space. You know, Time has named you one of the world's most 100 most influential folks. You're seen as a global thinker. But if you step back, you know, before you got into working on energy and environmental issues, what drove you into the space? What was your motivation to get started when you started writing even back in the 60s? Well, in the 60s, it was already obvious that the world was headed for serious problems around, among other things, the tangle of issues from population, resources, environment, economy, development, and security. And as I was writing my first professional paper on climate change in 1968, so that's now 50 years ago, uh, it became ever clearer that energy was kind of a master key for unlocking many of those puzzles, or at least offering better ways to think about them. Uh, And that has turned out to be uh, exactly the the, the fruitful approach to which I, you know, that I I made my life's work and and, uh, it's worked well so far. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've seen such such phenomenal sort of tran- transformations over that time, right? I mean, we, we, we're obviously seeing such a great surge right now in renewables, but the, the technology is not new. Jimmy Carter put solar panels in the White House 40 years ago. You know, they are, And they are still alive and well, providing hot water to the uh, dining hall and cafeteria at Unity College in Maine. Really? Yep. 
Oh, that's they were, they were rescued from a GSA warehouse, right? Uh, where the Reagan administration had stowed them and not allowed them to say it was there. But Unity College got curious about where they were and tracked them down. And the guy said, "Oh, I'm so glad you called. You know, we can't give these things away because they're government property." The Unity guy said, "Oh, but can you give it to a nonprofit? Yes. <laughs> when can amazing. you get the truck here? <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing." <laughs> <laughs> one of my uh, one of my fondest memories uh, of working in White, the White House was getting the panels put back on the top and actually getting to go up and see them up there. It was uh, an, an amazing, long overdue accomplishment. And yeah, well, um, we co-led the greening of the White House for President Clinton, and uh, a lot of good things have been underway ever since. Absolutely. So you know, in that in that career, you've seen a lot of transformation, right? What is you know what's what's excited you? What's scared you? You know, how do you sort of see? where we are today versus, you know, writing your first paper on climate change, you know, 50 years ago, 1968. Uh, well, in those days, uh, renewables were hardly even a gleam in the eye, although the Paley Commission under the Truman administration, I believe, had uh, recommended uh, emphasis on renewables. Thomas Edison foresaw they would be a big deal, but uh, they were they were considered so unrealistic that when my 76 foreign affairs paper reframing the energy problem referred to solar, it didn't mean photovoltaics. It meant solar thermal. Interesting. And energy efficiency in 76 was considered probably uh, impractical or unnecessary because after all, we live in a market economy, so we must already be using energy with perfect efficiency. It's quite amazing what people said in those days that if, if, uh, energy use grew slower than GDP, we'd be back to caves and candles. And they really said that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, therefore, just making the case that one could wring more work out of the energy and consider other kinds of supply, other scales of supply, and not all electric supply necessarily, but matched to the quality needed for the job, that was all heresy. Well, as it turns out, the rate of improvement of energy efficiency has tracked very closely to what that article suggested. Renewables, however, were held back 20-odd years by a, a series of policy choices and are only now doing what they should have been doing back then. Right. So if you, if you go to rmi.org and look up Solutions Journal last summer, you'll find a, a paper uh, a 40-year retrospective on that article about what worked, what didn't, and why, what we learned or should have learned from it. But broadly speaking, we're now getting over twice the work from each unit of energy that we did in the mid-70s. An eighth of the world's electricity is now from modern renewables, those other than big hydro, and that's creeping up one-odd percentage point a year. And those sources last year had 61% of the global market for new electric capacities and, and growing fast. They're, they're heading for, well, they're, they're, they got over twice as much investment as all fossil fuel generation, uh, heading for three quarters of the total uh, over the not many years. So now it's clear that we're headed for peak oil and probably peak gas in on the demand side. And peak coal uh, is already right around here. Right. Yeah, I think we're witnessing it, witnessing it today. So let me ask you, I want to get into the, the market forces and what's happening in the space. But before doing that, 
you know, you you have you were the co-founder of a, an amazingly influential organization, the Rocky Mountain Institute. I think if folks don't know RMI; they need, need to check it out. It's it's a group that, as I first got into this space, you know, I started getting interested in clean energy when I was deployed to Iraq as part of the Army's First Armor Division in two thousand three, two thousand four. Came home and had no idea the context. I just understood the idea around energy security and began to study. And reading actually a lot of your work at RMI influenced my next step in my career, which led me back to the Pentagon and working at these issues uh, hmm. across the Army. So I was the Army's first special advisor on energy. And, oh, for heaven's sake. Yeah, it was a fascinating and, and, role. And I've spent the last 20 or 30 years helping shape military energy policy on around efficiency, renewables, and resilience. And it's going very well. Yeah, it's, it's, I think people that don't know the space don't recognize that, you know, the Army manages three times the square footage of Walmart. And, and because of the policies <laughs> that many uh, like yourself are advocating for, you know, are, they're doing really innovative stuff on renewables, on mm-hmm. energy efficiency, on AVs, even in the, the headwinds that sometimes they face politically. Indeed, all, all the armed services are, are the national leaders within our government on efficiency of renewables. Absolutely. So, so stepping back, look, what, what drove you to start RMI? Um, you know, what was sort of the original mission and how has it changed over time? Well, it was clear uh, in 82 when my uh, then wife Hunter and I were starting up RMI that the, uh, the conventional assumptions about politics and political evolution were not going to hold and that there was a great need for an independent voice, uh, which we thought would be a handful of people. We now have about 200 (laughs) Uh, that, that could fit all the moving parts together that could do serious, uh, thought leadership practice and integration of a clean, prosperous, secure, low-carbon energy future. The premises we set it up on have proved valid, and uh, one of those is is to remain rigorously apolitical and nonpartisan. We work with everybody, and we are practitioners, not theorists. We do solutions, not problems. Uh, We do transformation, not incrementalism. And we say exactly what we think. That's that's turned out to be a, a, a useful approach. And, and I think Rocky Mountain Institute has, has earned some uh, respect and been able to do good work because of, of those core values. We now are active uh, as much abroad as at home, helped uh, with the transformation of Chinese en- energy policy. We're now... Uh, playing a similar role with uh, innovative mobility strategy for India and uh, doing everything from rural electrification in, uh, in Africa and uh, the uh, transition for Caribbean island nations from diesel to renewables and efficiency uh, all the way to uh, efficient aviation and marine shipping, but our, our core activities have long been with equal depth in all the energy using sectors, making buildings, mobility, industry, and electricity radically efficient, and the uh, renewable supply diverse, distributed, dynamic, and resilient. 
So, you know, I think being here in Washington, D.C., there are no lack of think tanks, right? Where folks publish academic policy positions and, and will we're, often write. We don't, we don't do that. Exactly, exactly. I think that's <laughs> yeah, what's we're, so exciting. We're think and do tank. The right. important word is and. And I would add a, a scale tank as well. We, we go make stuff big. We don't just uh, suggest it. Yeah, and what I find interesting with RMI is that, you know, in the startup world, many people talk about incubators, right? And you can look at so many things that have spun out of RMI, whether it be Black Power mm-hmm. Energy and, and other, other really amazing initiatives that, you know, started off being incubated within the, the walls there and now are making tremendous transformational change as they've moved out. Um, and it's something that you don't see, you don't see come out of the think tanks, right? And I love, I love the do tank phrase. You know, we, well, the important word is and in think and do. Uh, I think there's a Chinese proverb to the effect that uh, thinking without doing is a daydream, doing without thinking right. is a nightmare. Right. <laughs> uh, and we, we, we are uh, also an archetype of the entrepreneurial nonprofit in the earlier years, we earned 40 to 70% of our revenue from programmatic enterprise that supports our charitable mission, but does it using business tools and methods. We've had something like six or eight for-profit spinoffs, about four nonprofit spinoffs, one or two spin-ins, uh, and more of that going on all the time because we're now figuring out how to animate more of these market affiliates that will carry out our mission for fun and profit and and then feed some revenue back to the nonprofit mothership yeah <laughs> it's uh, and we we also uh from the beginning have uh, have been active in policy policy is important policy matters you got to get the rules right but most of our effort has from the beginning, focused on transformation that is business-led and market-driven. Uh, and that, that turned out to be a, a good call because that's where most of the action is. And uh, it, it didn't seem to us to make sense to go into fora largely owned by incumbent industries and try to argue against what they're good at and what they're comfortable doing, but rather to enlist both incumbents and insurgents in a creative tension with each other to do new things that would be of advantage to them. Right. It seems with, I mean, that's interesting, that, that, that touching, because the, the idea of what you're really trying to continuously transform, the, the goalposts keep, keep moving, right, in a very positive way, mm-hmm. if you think about it, over the, the course of uh, when, when you started in 1982. And there's been such acceleration in the last uh, 10 years or so in the energy space post the Paris pullout of this administration. You had corporate giants stepping forward saying, no, oh, no, we're, we're still in because this makes economic sense. We've mm-hmm. got entire you know offices around how to purchase energy now for, for Google and for Apple and for eBay and Walmart. You know, you all have really helped see that and, and set, but the goalposts for RMI keep, keep moving. So how do you all, from a leadership perspective, Try to look out and figure out where you should be playing next. <laughs> How to skate where the puck's going to yeah, be. Yeah, exactly. Well, by by having be, really being blessed with extraordinary people, and we, we seem to have some gravitational attraction to to pull in more of them that we that we can deal with actually. But the 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 inflow of talent has been most gratifying, and that's that's what's really 
been the foundation of our success uh, so far. And also, of course, having people with real field experience and strong connections and insight in the industries that we're trying to change, because we're we're trying to move a you know tens of trillions of dollars economic activity on a budget of about forty million. Right. So we need really strong leverage to do that, and that comes from being able to present reasoned and compelling business cases. One of the challenges we face is uh, there are so many shiny objects uh, attracting us in the in, in the insurgent space that we we mustn't forget to devote some serious effort to helping incumbents to change so that at least the the highly adaptive ones can be hived off from the herd and we won't be fighting all of them but some will will be uh helping lead the way with their remarkable skills so we're we're working with uh, a number of major energy companies now in various sectors to help them figure out uh, how to apply their skills and assets to graceful exits from others, right. uh, other activities that aren't so promising. And uh, we've also had good fortune with what's called uh, ELAB, Energy Electricity Innovation Laboratory, which provides has has now for some years provided a safe place where incumbents and insurgents can meet and create value together rather than just lobbing grenades in public. Interesting. And, you know, with, with eLab and, you know, going back to the, you know, I think insurgents and incumbents concept with, with all the, dis- the, I don't want to really use the word disruption, but the, uh, the transformation that's happening around, Oh, it is very disruptive. It is very disruptive. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) But, you know, around distributed generation, we've got really just such major players in the the private sector now, you know, no longer relying on just uh, paying the utility bill, but actually putting really sophisticated purchasing uh, power forward and, and leveraging their strengths, you know, seeing Microsoft doing massive solar in places like Virginia, where I live in Virginia and there's very little solar to be had as a as a uh, off taker, but they come in and say, hey, we're going to bring these data centers here if you do X. Or, you know, mm-hmm. I think we're well aware of Google. But at the same point, you have the the utility status quo trying to adjust to this, right? And you, you have spinoffs like Energy Impact Partners, which is a really interesting sort of venture capital pool they put together to look at new, t- new technologies. How Does RMI play a role at all of bringing those forces together and finding ways that to find solutions for both? Uh, very much so. Our, our uh, business renewables center members, several hundred firms, accounted for upwards of 96% of the corporate uh, renewable energy purchases last year. Wow. And uh, through that forum, we're able to share best practices, do bulk deals for companies that want to buy renewable energy both to save money uh, and avoid price volatility, and to be doing the right thing, which is good for reputation, recruitment, retention, motivation of their talent, and uh, doing what their customers expect of a responsible company. So there, there are very strong direct and indirect business reasons now. It's not just that renewables are cheaper, although that's a strong motivation, but it, it's not that unusual for a 
creative and and uh, far-sighted CEO to be moved by the spirit at some conference to to say, yeah, we're going to go all renewable by the year X, and then comes back home and word gets around and the purchasing people say, oh my God, I don't right. know how to buy that stuff. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I just know how to, how to buy uh, kilowatt hours and and uh, MCF of gas. Uh, hell. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but then we, we hook them up with, with, uh, with others who've been there, done that, and, uh, you know, make their first rodeo. And they, uh, there's a lot of wonderful information sharing going on. But we've, we've had the, the good fortune to be kind of in at the creation of, uh, of the automotive transformation, uh, similar transitions in everything from semiconductors and data centers to, to older industries. And of course the birth and growth of, uh, of green buildings, a concept Bill Browning invented of course. around the early nineties in our shop and exploiting indirect benefits of happier, healthier, more productive people in efficient green buildings. So uh, the, it's wonderful to see the green and efficient building movement spread around the world. And, and it, it matters, of course, to energy because buildings use three quarters of U.S. electricity. Only a quarter goes to industry. Right. So it, there's, there's a lot going on uh, that often comes, fr- we're finding, from unexpected interactions between sectors that aren't even adjacent to each other. Uh, for example, the, the, the smartphone uh, the need to miniaturize energy storage and the premia that the phone makers will pay for longer battery life have driven huge technical advances in batteries. That, those then made it affordable to put batteries in cars, giving rise to the likes of Tesla and everybody else. Practically every automaker has a big lineup of electric cars on or, or about to enter the market, and some of them are awfully attractive. But then when you make that many batteries, they get cheap for everybody, which means you can start to pair them up with, uh, renew- with variable renewables, photovoltaics and wind. Uh, not that you need to do that because there's about nine other ways to integrate those variable renewables reliably into the grid, but batteries are one way to do it. And of course, when that happens, you start to get further innovation, which in turn can be the end of thermal power stations because it will shortly be so cheap to make your rooftop solar power, even in Virginia, 24-7, that it's not even clear there will be that much use for the grid anymore. It could right. get, get stranded just like phone company Copper did. And how do we continue to bring the utilities forward uh, you know, uh, uh, there's no doubt in uh, being here in Virginia that, that there's enough solar, not enough sun to create solar. The challenge is a policy fight in Richmond with with Dominion Energy, right? And and mm-hmm. you know, there's when you we literally look across the river into Washington D.C. It's one of the hottest markets in the country for solar. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. how do we continue to educate these utilities and provide them new business models, really, so that they can figure out how to stay. Uh, stay active in this space? Well, they, they have several big issues. First of all, they're traditionally regulated in a way that rewards them for selling you more energy and penalizes them for cutting your bill. Right. 
there's a way to fix that called decoupling and shared savings that about uh, 16 states, I believe, have done for electricity, about 20 for gas, more on the way. And Edison Electric Institute and American Gas Association support that reform. And more utilities are wanting it because it helps protect their revenues from erosion as efficiency and renewables cut into their own sales. But that then raises an issue that goes back to Thomas Edison. When he set up the electricity business, he did not sell kilowatt hours. He sold light. He would charge you a penny to run a lamp for an hour because as an inventor, he knew people would come up with much more efficient lamps. And when they did, he wanted that to cut his costs of producing the lighting service, not his revenues. He was overruled in 1892, and ever since then, utilities have been selling electrons as a commodity. So the more efficiently you use the electrons, the less money they make. They're cutting their revenues, not their costs. So the whole revenue model is upside down. And the same thing is true of the hydrocarbon industries, which sells molecules when what you want is services like comfort and mobility. So that's a really big issue that very few of the companies have come to grips with yet. And of course, then efficiency in using energy is undergoing the same radical change that uh, renewables have done. And the same analytic methods and models that failed to predict the one are failing to foresee the other. So most people don't realize that very large, even as much as tenfold energy savings in buildings and factories and vehicles now can cost less than normal inefficiency. So the more you invest in efficiency, the more you save, but the less it costs. In other words, expanding returns, not diminishing returns. That is quite commonly found now through what we call integrative design, and that's hardly on anybody's radar because it it doesn't fit conventional economic theory any more than than the uh, renewable revolution did. Can you talk a little bit? So when you say integrated design, are we talking about integrated sort of an energy management system? No. Uh, simple example, uh, I'm a passive solar banana farmer near Aspen, Colorado, where it used to go to minus 47F on occasion. We've had as much as 39 days of continuous cloud in midwinter, but our house doesn't have a furnace. It's uh, passively heated and was a forerunner of the passive house movement. Right. But it was slightly cheaper to build that way because the stuff that got rid of the heating system cost less than we saved by not putting in the heating system. I'm talking about upfront construction costs, right, not right. subsequent savings. Avoid a cost, and, right? Yeah, and the office from which I'm talking to you does the same thing. Roughly normal construction costs, like any modern passive building, no mechanicals except an air-to-air heat exchanger, no normal heating or cooling equipment, and just uh, provides passive comfort. And ultimately, everything will be built that way. It is now becoming mandatory in California and in some other parts of the world. But the the integrative design optimizes the building as a whole system for multiple benefits rather than a component like insulation for single benefits. Or to pick a, a simpler example even, if you make the world's pipes and ducts fat, short, and straight rather than skinny, long, and crooked, you save so much friction and therefore so much pump and fan energy that you would displace roughly half the world's coal-fired electricity. And you'd recover your investment in typically less than a year in retrofit, less than zero in new builds. And yet this is not, on in, in anybody's forecast, 
because it's not a technology. It's a design method. Right. And most people th don't think of design, the way we choose and combine technologies, as a scaling vector, but it is. Interesting. So we, yeah, so we, we've shown how to do that in buildings, vehicles, mobility systems, industry, in sufficient depth and detail that, that it, it's really hard to argue with. But you're, you then run squarely into economic theory that says the more of anything you buy or do, the more it costs, increasing marginal cost. And if you try to model the opposite, expanding, not diminishing returns, it makes your models blow up and your heads hurt so you don't want to think about it. Right. So this is, this is now a major kind of confrontation brewing between economic theory and engineering reality. Interesting. A conversation to be had with... Uh... ASHRAE and USGBC, right, on, on some of this yeah, stuff. So. Yeah, there, there are a lot of people there who understand yep. it, but, but uh, they're not the ones writing the, the uh, economic uh, forecasts. Exactly. So, so the bad, bad news about climate is that it's changing faster and less linearly than the conservative models said, and the good news is that the same models greatly understated the scope for profitable mitigation. So we right. can indeed get to a two or even one and a half degree uh, trajectory, not at a cost, but at a profit. And that ought to change the politics. Yeah. So I actually would like to do a whole different conversation on that because I, I think I completely agree with you. It's sort of the heart of what clean capital has been focusing on. And, you know, mm -hmm. we, we are driving to educate more folks in the investor space to say, you know, there's such a great effort around the divest movement, for instance, but let's turn on a dime and say, look, it's equally as profitably investing into to solar or some other spaces it is and what you're doing in the real estate space, for instance. But I wanted to ask sort of two final questions. One, looking at the work that you're doing internationally, we often talk about you know uh, ideas and, and innovation we can export in terms of clean energy to, to China or India. But I think there's so much knowledge that we can import on what they're doing. Is there anything that you've seen that really stands out that we should be trying to replicate here at home? <laughs> yeah. Boy, where to start on that one? Uh, you know, brains are evenly distributed, one per person, right. <laughs> as says the Pinchot's remark. And uh, therefore, most of the brains are not in the rich countries. Uh, only half are in the heads of men. Many are in, most are in the heads of poor people who are very resourceful. And we have a lot to learn if we have the humility to uh, look at what other people are coming up with. China is making extraordinary world-leading progress in both efficiency and renewables. We're seeing very exciting developments at both the national and a state and city level in India in rethinking personal mobility and making it shared, connected, and electric, and also fair and accessible to everybody. Uh, some of the technical and policy innovations there, I think, will have a big influence in other countries. Uh, so that's why our, our big report on that with with uh, the Prime Minister's uh, strategy shop called Niti is called India Leaps Ahead, because that's exactly what this could produce. Right. We are also seeing exciting innovations in in some of the poorest countries that are leapfrogging over the phases of energy development that countries like ours had to go through and are going straight to very efficient renewable provision of basic services. And that that has uh, huge implications for bringing a decent life to all and helping to reduce both injustice and, and conflict in the world. 
Absolutely. So again, th- that could be a whole different podcast and conversation. I'm, I'm fa- I actually did my uh, master's thesis on Chinese energy security. Fascinated on what what's happening there versus you know the, the five year plans and how they differ from the way we approach things here. But, but there's one final question, uh, and I sort of asked this to all uh, folks on the, the podcast. You had such a prolific uh, and impactful career. You know, if you could go back to yourself at a young age, for instance, like coming out of high school, and you could sit down and have coffee, you know, what, what advice would you give? Well, first of all, don't take any crap from the educational administrators <laughs> who, who, who want you to study just one thing. Most of the world's big problems come from trying to do just one thing without understanding how it's connected to everything else. So jump the fences, walk out the grass. <laughs> right <laughs> and, uh, and and you know go learn what what you want to what you think you need and the more disparate your learning is the more effective you're likely to be and and second for a smart motivated person like you there are few if any disciplines that you cannot learn as much about in 6 months as most not all but most people in the field know right that was true even before the internet and and once you understand that, it's it's profoundly liberating because you 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 can take the initiative to go figure out what you need to learn, what you need to do, what you need to, and uh, don't let anybody uh, keep you down or hold you back. I'll tell you quick, just put a story behind that. When I was working at the Pentagon and first got interested in the finance piece, we were doing large large scale power purchase agreements. Didn't I didn't understand anything around finance. I don't have an MBA. I literally went and bought corporate finance for dummies to start to, <laughs> to start to read and understand it. I had a similar when I had the similar role at the White House, I set up a clean energy finance working group to get smarter at it. And here we go. Now I'm running a FinTech company, but uh, mm-hmm. it all it all works out. A- Amory, thank you so much for your for your time, for your commitment to the space um, and the mission and all the work you've done. I really uh, am honored to have you on today. Well, honored to be here. Thank you very much for all you do. Thank you. Bye. Well, honored to have Amory Lovins on today's episode. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. You can learn more about Clean Capital at cleancapital.com and find more expert only podcasts. And if you have thoughts or ideas, please let us know. I wanted to thank our producers, Emily Connor, and as well as and just, uh, Lauren Glickman. And wanted to thank you for listening, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you. 